0: Ecclesiastes chapter 1. If you're looking in an actual physical Bible, like like I still love to have, about the middle you'll find Psalms, then head right to Proverbs, and then one more book, Ecclesiastes chapter 1. We're excited to begin a series in this wonderful book. You've got a little bookmark actually in your bulletin with the upcoming few sermons. We will finish the whole book take a couple brief breaks, so here are the next five sermons. And on the back, you've got our past memory verses. Ecclesiastes is a little bit difficult to isolate particular verses until you get to the end. But we've got memory verse review, which is very helpful. Let me mention two resources for you before Emily reads our passage. One is... This study in the Knowing the Bible series by Justin Holcomb, Ecclesiastes, a 12-part study. Recommend this as a Bible study in this wonderful book. It will help you. It will hold your hand. And also this book by David Gibson, Living Life Backward. Living Life Backward, how Ecclesiastes teaches us to live in light of the end. It's a great summation of this book. I recommend David Gibson's Living Life Backward. Let us be now addressed by God after I pray, and Emily will read for us. Spirit of God, do now give us the gift of illumination as we are addressed by you, blessed Trinity, in your living and active word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: Ecclesiastes 1, verses 1 through 11. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things, yet to be among those who come after. The word of the Lord.
0: Thank you, Emily, very much. Where do you turn to find meaning and satisfaction in this life? Where is that for you? Where do you turn as a teenager, young person, when you think mom and dad are keeping you from the good stuff in this world? How do you find out and figure out what is going to truly satisfy in this life? Where do you look? as a 20- or 30-year-old, with hopes and dreams and maybe a a vision for making a lasting difference in this world, a, a good thing, but will that deliver for you in this life? How can you find out? Where do you go in middle age when you realize those hopes and dreams aren't coming to pass and you feel disappointed? Maybe even find yourself in despair. Where do you turn then? Where do you go in your senior years looking back on your life and evaluating? And to be honest, it doesn't make a lot of sense to you. You are perplexed. Did all of this have any meaning? Where do you turn then? For those times and many others, turn to the book of Ecclesiastes. Why Ecclesiastes, you ask? Short answer, we need the Bible's wisdom, literature. We need all of the Bible, including the Bible's wisdom, literature. These books will not increase your intelligence. They will not raise your IQ. It's not that kind of wisdom. The Bible's wisdom literature is about skill for living in God's world. Skill for living in God's world. Practical godliness, you might say, painted on the canvas of real life. Take, for instance, the books of Proverbs, Job, and Ecclesiastes, sort of wisdom literature staples. Derek Kidner likens those three books to three different houses. Proverbs is the grand, prosperous house. We love going to that house. Job is the wrecked house. Disaster has struck that house. And Ecclesiastes is the decaying house. It was once beautiful and still has beauty, but it's decaying, it's broken down, it's dilapidated in ways. Friends, we need all three of those strands of wisdom. We need all three of those houses because you're going to find yourself living in each of those houses at various points in your lives. Proverbs showing you the wisdom of how things typically work, how things typically operate in God's economy. You work hard, it pays off for you. Job showing you the wisdom of when suffering arrives. How do you trust God? And Ecclesiastes is showing you the wisdom of how to think when life doesn't look like the book of Proverbs, which it doesn't sometimes. Times when you're perplexed, times when you're trying to find meaning or satisfaction, times when you find yourself wondering, is this all there is? So we must spend time in this decaying house called Ecclesiastes. That's why this series. And to help us benefit from this series and this book, we need to glean three things from the prologue this morning. Three things from the prologue that Emily just read to us. Here's the first. The speaker's. That we'll hear, the speakers, the identity of the different speakers in this book. In verse one, a a narrator walks out on the stage. Verse one, the narrator says, The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. That's the narrator speaking, and he's introducing us to, he says, the preacher. Now, the narrator doesn't come back on stage until the end of chapter 12. He'll step back on stage and sum things up for us, but in between, it's almost like a one-man play. In between, we have a lengthy monologue from someone called the preacher. Who is that? The preacher. The Hebrew word seems to be derived from another word meaning assembly. So this might be a kind of leader of the assembly, leader of the congregation. That's why he's called the preacher or teacher. But who is he? Verse 1 tells us he's, quote, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Sounds like Solomon, King Solomon, and it might be. But son in Hebrew can mean descendant. And Solomon is not named anywhere in this book. Solomon is named in Proverbs, not in Ecclesiastes. And it says in chapter 1, verse 16, that he surpasses all who were over Jerusalem before him. Well, there was only one king who reigned in Jerusalem itself before him. That was his dad, King David. It seems odd if this is Solomon. And the setting the setting doesn't seem to line up real well with the time of Solomon. Many think the book reflects a later time when Israel was absorbing a Greek worldview and Greek philosophy. The bottom line is we don't know the identity of the preacher with any certainty. It's best we take the advice of J.I. Packer, who wrote, whether Solomon himself was the preacher or the preacher put his sermon into Solomon's mouth as a teaching device, it need not concern us. The sermon is certainly Solomonic. <laughs> the sermon is certainly Solomonic in the sense that it teaches lessons which Solomon had unique opportunities to learn. I think that's the point. We're going to learn lessons that Solomon himself had unique opportunities to learn, So the speakers are a narrator speaking to us today and then about 11 chapters of the preacher and then the narrator is going to come back at the end and sum things up. But what's their message? What are they trying to tell us? What is God telling us through them? Well, secondly, we need to see the theme. The theme. The primary theme of this book. It's not hard to find. It's given to us in verse 2. Verse 2, look at that please. Verse 2 reads, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Have a nice day. All is meaningless, other translations say, but the term is more literally vapor. Like a mist. He's saying Meaning, grasping meaning, and it's like it's—it's it's like a mist, grasping, grasping a vapor. It's like grabbing onto smoke. It's like stepping out of the shower in the bathroom and trying to grab hold of the steam. It's elusive. He's not saying there's no meaning, but he's saying getting that is so hard. You're like trying to grab hold of a vapor, a mist. that's the key theme especially we're going to find especially because death is inevitable so it's it's a rather dark book in that sense now there are rays of light that break through the dark clouds thankfully Simple pleasures like eating, drinking, and enjoying your work. Ecclesiastes recognizes those as good gifts from God to be enjoyed, for sure. But they're not the main theme. They're not the primary idea. The main theme is being given to us by the narrator here in verse 2. Vanity of vanities. It's a Hebrew superlative, like holy of holies. It's saying vapor-like meaning to the max, (laughs) mist-like meaning cranked up to 10. So think of of this book with two opposite poles. Many commentators point this out, two opposite poles. One is good gifts to be enjoyed, yes. The other is meaning as a vapor, a mist, because you're going to die. And in between these poles, you experience in this book and in this life a kind of tension. I think that's some of the genius of this book. You experience, as you read it, this tension that you experience in real life between these two poles. I was with my dear wife this past Sunday down at Pacific Beach. We got away for an overnight for Valentine's. Get down there about 5 o'clock. Let's get to the beach, honey, because the sun is setting. It was a spectacular sunset last Sunday. The Santa Anas were here blowing, if you recall, so it was crystal clear. The sky was a brilliant orange. And I just wanted to preserve that sunset. I wanted to freeze that moment on the beach with my wife, but I couldn't. Time kept marching on, sunset into the ocean, as it were, it got dark. I thought, that's kind of like Ecclesiastes, such beauty, but you can't hold on to it, you can't preserve it, And, and the beauty comes with such challenges, great suffering, Tremendous trials and and difficulties. That's the tension here. The kind of polarity. Beauty and pain. Enjoyment and heartache. That's the tension of real life. So the question is, how are you living in that tension? What's your approach to that tension? That polarity? How do you... How do you navigate it? Is your approach carpe diem, (laughs) seize the day? Hashtag YOLO, you only live once. Or, or, discouragement, often, despair even, maybe hopelessness right now. The wisdom we need, friends, the skill for living that we need is how to navigate that tension. And the preacher is going to help us. The preacher, the narr- narrator is introducing, he's going to take us by the hand and take us on a journey, as it were, a guided journey that he himself has already taken. He's like, he's like an Arctic explorer. He's like Ernest Shackleton, but his exploration is of all that could possibly satisfy you in life. And that that leads to the third thing we need to see here. I'll call it the search. The search. The search for meaning, purpose, significance, satisfaction. The search. The search is sort of teed up by this key question in verse three. Look at verse three. What does man gain? What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Is there there gain? Is Is there lasting advantage? Is there ultimate purpose in your toil? And by toil, don't think just your job, just your nine to five. Your toil is anything that requires your effort, any way you hope to achieve something under the sun, it says. That's another important phrase in Ecclesiastes. Under the sun. It's often said that refers to the the preacher's merely secular mindset. He's looking at life without any reference to God. But we're going to find the preacher mentions God quite a bit. (laughs) He might question God's purposes, but he's not an atheist nor a secularist. No, under the sun... Under the sun is the preacher examining life in the here and now only. In the here and now only. Under the sun is the preacher looking at life in its current fallen state, examining life in a Genesis 3 world, a sin-cursed world. In that kind of world, he's asking here, is there lasting advantage, ultimate achievement? That's the question. The narrator raises, and he starts answering it in verse 4. Look at verse 4 with me. A generation goes, and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Think about that. A generation comes, a generation goes. Can can any of you name all of your great-grandparents? I think I might be able to name one. Anybody name all of your great-grandparents? If you can, tell me later. Think about that. Three generations, you are completely forgotten by your own family. Generations come, generations go. The earth remains. Are you starting to sense the futility already? And then he illustrates it. Verse 5. The sun rises. The sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. Kind of like Sung and I experienced at Pacific Beach. Verse 6. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind. On its circuit, the wind returns. Verse 7. All streams run to the sea but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. He's saying it's a, it's a cyclical world. You see these cycles in nature. The sun rises and sets and does it again tomorrow. The wind blows around and around, just keeps on going. Streams flow to the ocean. The ocean's never filled up. His point is not well, there's this evaporation cycle. His point is, nothing really changes. Nothing is ultimately achieved. And he says, that's an analogy for your life. Verse 8. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. It's beyond words. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. Your eye never says, I've seen enough. Nothing more to see. I can stop seeing now. Your ear never says, nothing more to hear. My job is done. That never happens. So the narrator says, verse 9. I wanted to catch verse 9. What has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. Notice, and there is nothing new under the sun. Nothing new under the sun. Verse 10, is there a thing of which it is said? See, this is new. It has been already in the ages before us. Life is this merry-go-round. Around and around and around and around we go with nothing really new, he's saying. Sure, we have computers. They're recent. Smartphones. We've been to the moon. But, he's saying, the cycles of birth and life and death, they're unbroken. They've not changed. The human condition in this world, has not fundamentally changed. Tim Keller remarks how we often try to find meaning at a person's funeral. And we say things like, she made the world a better place or he made the world a a better place. And the narrator saying, no, they didn't, Not, not really not lastingly, and you won't either. Nothing changes ultimately. Nothing is achieved ultimately. The human condition is the same. Now you might object, maybe you are right now. You might think, well Tab, I mean, building generational wealth changes things. Money, possessions, that's gain, that's achievement. CNN reported this week that there is a a ship in the ocean. I don't know if you saw this. It's carrying Porsches and Bentleys. It's carrying $100,000 and $200,000 cars, and it's on fire. $200,000 cars are melting. That's what's going to happen with our generational wealth, ultimately. You might object, yeah, but, but fame, attention, praise from others, that's impacting lives. That's gain. That's achievement. New York Times this week told the story of Ava Majuri, a TikTok star. TikTok is a social media platform, Joshua Morgan. It's a frightening story because of a stalker who came after her, and frightening because of the vapor that she's after. She said, I'm impacting lives. Quote, I post a video at night, close my eyes. In the morning, it's exciting to see how many views I got. Her father interjects, it's like Christmas every day. Waking up every day to see how many views you got, that's Christmas. Ecclesiastes says, no, that's chasing the wind. Teenagers, are you with me? What about reaching the pinnacle of your career? Top of your profession. That is gain, that is achievement. Derwin Gray is an author and pastor. He writes that growing up, football was his God, and he reached the pinnacle of the football world, played for six seasons in the NFL. Then he writes, in Christianity Today, I started getting injured. My body was how I made my living. As it began to give out, I was stripped of everything I thought gave me meaning. I was left with nothing, even though seemingly I had everything. Are you hearing that? Are you starting to feel the mist? The vapor? The vanity? You're supposed to. If I could summarize the effect that at least came to my mind in one word, I would use the word expectation. Nothing ultimately changes, he's telling us. Nothing ultimately achieved for life in the here and now. I think that's supposed to shape our expectations. There's a a counselor in the area to whom we have referred a number of our members. He's been really helpful to them, and we're so glad for that. I think all of those members have come back to me at some point and told me what they have found most helpful in meeting with this counselor. One consistent theme, expectations. I found that so fascinating, because it's good to change, and it's good to help others change, but things might not change in how you want, and how you deal with that's really important. That's the issue with expectations. How many married couples, when the marriage feels stalled, the husband or the wife, they start finding someone else far more interesting, far more exciting. Their heart rate speeds up when they see that other person. They think, I'm in love with him or her now. Why? They're excited about the new the perceived change, the idolatry of, no, of novelty. Someone will seem more exciting at first because you had the wrong expectations. Ongoing closeness in marriage requires work. you got to expect that. In his book on midlife, Lost in the Middle, Paul Tripp describes the crisis of midlife with a bunch of D words like uh, dissatisfaction, disorientation, discouragement, disappointment. Whatever your age, can't you relate to those? Dissatisfaction, disorientation, discouragement, disappointment. Despair. Why do we feel those things? Often, isn't it because we're trying to wring some gain, some purpose, some achievement, some satisfaction out of the wrong things? It's like trying to wring water out of a dry towel. We've got the wrong expectation. I think that's at least one thing God is helping us with here, isn't it? Look at the sun. The wind, the sea, it just cycles over and over and over. Look at your eyes and your ears. They never stop. They're never fulfilled. Nothing really new. Nothing ultimately achieved in the here and now. In life under the sun, the human condition remains the same. So have a right expectation so that you can have a right hope as well. I'm not sure if you've seen the movie Groundhog Day. Bill Murray plays a weatherman who has to relive February 2nd, Groundhog Day, over and over in Pontsatawney, Pennsylvania. It's like our passage, cycles over and over and over the merry-go-round of life. Why doesn't this ever change? Bill Murray's character cannot escape the curse of the same day, every day. Every day's got to relive February 2nd. At first, he thinks it's great. I can do whatever I want. No consequences the next day. So he gorges on food. He punches a guy who annoys him. He seduces women. He turns to greed. He robs an armored car. He uses the money to buy the car and clothes they always wanted. Doesn't change things. Still February 2nd. He seeks to better himself, takes up piano, ice sculpting, French poetry, doesn't change things. He keeps waking up, February 2nd, Groundhog Day. Finally, he looks at the woman that he, he loves. And he says, quote, I don't know what will happen tomorrow. All I know is I'm happy right now. He comes to this place of, I want to say, contentment. I might say right expectations. And the curse breaks. He wakes up in the morning and it's February 3rd. That's this prologue. Endless cycles giving us right expectations for this life under the sun. The here and now only so that we can have a right hope. Hope we gain, friends, when we read the Bible as we ought, as one book. I hope the past two weeks taught us that. Read your Bible as one book. Hope we gain if we read this book of Ecclesiastes as we should in light of Christ. Derek Kidner has said that Ecclesiastes exists to make the darkness intolerable. Ecclesiastes exists to make the darkness intolerable. You feel this intolerable darkness. Why? So that then you turn to the light of the world. This book makes us ask, what am I living for? And then the New Testament comes and says, your ultimate hope is Jesus. So teenagers, young people, youth, Thinking this world is where it's at for real satisfaction. Thinking your parents are keeping you from the good stuff in this world. You want to grasp at pleasure. You want to live for today. You want to ignore tomorrow. Carpe diem. Hashtag YOLO. God is saying that is going to let you down big time. That is going to let you down hard. But there's a better hope for you. 20 or 30 year olds maybe looking for real achievement you've got goals you've got dreams climb the corporate ladder more and more affluence or make a lasting difference which is a good desire But God is saying that expectation for your toil it's not ultimately going to deliver for you but there is a better hope. People in middle age like me, (laughs) facing your finiteness in dissatisfaction, disorientation, discouragement, maybe despair this morning. As your goals and dreams don't all come to pass. God is saying, "I, I have a different hope for you. Adjust your expectations and find a greater hope. Seeing your saints, looking back on your life, maybe with a degree of cynicism. Is that all there was? Why didn't God do more? God wants to adjust, perhaps, your expectations for a greater hope. I might even say to all of us, dare I say, have a right expectation for church life together too. That's also important. And a great, great, great hope in Jesus Christ. See that nothing will ultimately change. Nothing is ultimately achieved by us in life under the sun. And so we turn to Christ who does ultimately change things. He brings a new covenant, as Joshua taught us last week, Jeremiah 31, a new relationship with God in which you know him genuinely, and he promises to remember your sins no more. He makes you a new creation, 2 Corinthians 5. If you are in Christ, if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come, not yet fully, but it will. And he makes all things new. One day, Revelation 21, John writes, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, behold, I am making all things new. So hear God's message of wisdom for us today. Have right expectations now to have a right hope in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together to that end. And then we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper, which I hope will be even sweeter after seeing the vanity we've just been introduced to. Let's pray first, though. And if you are here and you, you have yet to turn to Jesus Christ. You've yet to trust in him to take away your sins personally. Look, we are so glad you're here. You're in the right place today. I think it's no accident that you're here. I want to give you this moment to cry out to God in your heart, to turn from going your own way, turn from trying to find satisfaction in all the wrong places, and turn to a far greater hope in Christ. He lived, died, and rose from the dead to bring you to God. Come to him even now, believing. For others, maybe there's a moment here where you want to ask God for new expectations and a far greater hope. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thank you for your wisdom (laughs) in giving us this book of wisdom. Help us to learn the lessons you have for us herein. Show us where we are pursuing satisfaction, ultimate satisfaction wrongly. Help us where we are Expecting too much from life under the sun. Forgive us where we need forgiveness. And assure us even now of a far greater hope secured for us in Jesus. We ask you for this in his name. Amen. Those who are going to serve us the Lord's Supper can come forward at this time. I hope you're feeling the sweetness, the sweetness of a far greater hope, the sweetness of a great hope your Savior has secured for you in his life, death, and resurrection, the only one who makes all things new, who brings real and lasting change. So friends, in a moment, please receive the bread and the cup. Go back to your seat. We'll take them together and feast on Christ by faith this morning. If you've yet to turn to Christ,